To kick off the second season of Don Bosco Stories this year, I was saving one of the most incredible dreams from his life. He and his boys are confronted with what sounds like the beatific vision and fall prostrate in front of God's blinding presence. It's a true humility check for all faithful Catholics. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. These past few days, he began, while I was away, I had a very frightening dream. I went to bed one evening, thinking about the stranger who, as I told you a few nights ago, had taken me in a dream through the dormitories, and with a lamp had shown me the boy's sins on their foreheads. While I was wondering whether he was a human like us, or a spirit in human form, I fell asleep and immediately seemed to be carried back to the oratory. To my surprise, it was no longer here in Valdoco, but at the entrance of a valley long and wide, hemmed in between two lovely hills. I was with you, but you were all silent and tense. Suddenly the sun broke out, shining so strongly that we were forced to lower our heads. We remained in that position for some time until the blinding light dimmed almost to absolute darkness, making it difficult for us to see or recognize even those close to us. The sudden change was very frightening. As I tried to figure out what to do, a greenish light flashed at one corner of the valley and, streaming across it, formed a graceful rainbow between the two hills. The darkness receded, and from the rainbow, very similar to a rainbow after a heavy rainfall or the aurora borealis, multicolored beams of light streamed into the valley. While we were all intent on admiring and enjoying this charming spectacle, I noticed a phenomenon even more astounding at the far end of the valley, a gigantic electric globe hanging in midair, darting blinding flashes in all directions so that no one could look at it without the risk of falling to the ground in a daze. The globe kept floating down toward us, illuminating the valley more brilliantly than 10 of our suns could have done at full noon. As it drew nearer and nearer, the boys, blinded by its glare, dropped face to the ground, as if struck by lightning. At first, I too was terrified, but then getting hold of myself, I forced my eyes to gaze boldly upon the globe, following its movement until it stopped some 300 meters above our heads. Then I decided that I must see what sort of phenomenon it was. I scanned it thoroughly, and distant though it was, I could see that its summit had the shape of a large sphere and bore a huge inscription, the Almighty, it said. The whole globe was ringed by several tiers of balconies crowded with joyful, jubilant people, men and women, young and old, dressed in sparkling, indescribably beautiful garments of many colors. Their warm smiles and friendliness seemed to invite us to share their joy and triumph. From the center of this heavenly globe, countless shafts of light radiated, flashing so blindingly that any boys looking at them were stunned, staggered a moment, and then fell face down to the ground. I, too, unable to endure such brilliance any longer, exclaimed, O Lord, I beg you, either let this divine sight vanish or let me die, for I can no longer withstand such extraordinary beauty. Then I felt faint and I too dropped to the ground with the cry, let us invoke God's mercy. 
Coming to myself again, I stood up moments later and decided to tour the valley and see what had happened to the boys. To my great surprise and wonder, I saw that all were prostrate and motionless in prayer. In order to find out whether they were all dead or alive, I prodded several with my foot, asking, "'What's the matter? Are you alive or dead?' All gave me the same answer. "'I am imploring God's mercy.' Then, to my deep sorrow, I came upon several, their faces black as coal, who kept gazing defiantly upon the globe, almost as if challenging God. I went up and called them by name, but they gave no sign of life. Paralyzed by the rays of light darting from the globe because of their obstinate refusal to fall prostrate and implore God's mercy with their companions, they had become as cold as ice. What grieved me even more was that they were so numerous. Just then, an abnormally huge, indescribably horrid monster rose up at the far end of the valley. Never had I seen anything as frightening as that. It strode toward us. I told all the boys to stand up, and they too were terrorized by the horrible sight. Gasping in anguish, I searched frantically for some Salesian to help me get the boys up the nearest hill for safety, but I could find no one. Meanwhile, the monster kept getting closer and closer. When it was about to overtake us, the brilliant globe, which until then had hovered over our heads, quickly dropped almost to the ground, shielding us from the monster. And at that moment, a voice thundered through the valley, Nulla est convincio Christi cum Belial. No treaty is possible between Christ and Belial, between the children of light and the children of darkness, that is, between the good and the bad, whom Holy Scripture calls the children of Belial. At these words, I awoke in a cold sweat. Although it was only midnight, I couldn't fall asleep again or feel warm the rest of the night. I was amply consoled at having seen almost all our boys humbly seek God's mercy and faithfully respond to his favors. But I must admit my profound grief at the goodly number of proud, hard-hearted lads who rejected God's loving invitation and drew his chastisements upon themselves. I already summoned a few of these boys last night and others today so that they may soon make their peace with God and stop abusing his mercy and scandalizing their companions. There can be no alliance between God's children and the devil's followers. Nulla est convincio Christi cum Belial. This is their last warning. As you see, my dear boys, what I have told you is but a dream like all the others. Still, let us thank God for using this means to show us our spiritual condition. How generously he enlightens and favors those who humbly implore his help and assistance in material and spiritual need. Deus superbis resistit humilibus autem dat gratiam. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. According to Father Berto, Don Bosco didn't further elaborate on the details of the dream, but we can easily grasp the message. As long as we are in this valley of tears, God permits periods of light and darkness in our spiritual life, just as day alternates with night. Those who withstand the darkness and apparent abandonment humbly and trustingly 
soon see light return more brilliant than ever with a magnificent rainbow. Those instead who, full of themselves, neglect their spiritual life and are concerned only with earthly matters soon lose God's grace and repeatedly fall prey to the infernal monster who, like a roaring lion, endlessly roams about seeking to wrest souls from God. Humility and greatness go hand in hand, St. Augustine said, because the humble man is united with God. Humility doesn't consist in shabbiness of dress, speech, or demeanor, but in lying prostrate, mind, heart, and soul totally centered on God, with full awareness of one's nothingness in an endless plea for his mercy. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to see a playlist with all of the dreams of St. John Bosco that we've performed on this channel so far, just click on the link above me here. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Happy New Year. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Don Bosco predicts murder and other stories. Seeing that his blessing healed people who were critically ill, St. John Bosco realized that this was due to Mary's intercession, and he took pains not to let the poison of vanity creep into his heart. He constantly and determinedly prayed, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory, as it says in the Psalms. He thought so humbly of himself that he frequently sought advice from learned and saintly priests. Bishop Bertania, former professor of moral theology at the Convito Ecclesiastico in turn, testified as follows at Don Bosco's process for beatification. I am convinced that Don Bosco possessed the supernatural gift of healing. He told me so himself when we were both making our spiritual retreat at St. Ignatius' shrine in Lonzo. He confided in me because he wanted my advice on whether or not he should continue giving his blessing to the sick, along with holy pictures of Mary, help of Christians, and of our Savior. He was ill at ease because many cures seemed prodigious and caused a lot of talk. I believed he was telling the truth, and for better or for worse, I advised him to continue giving his blessing. His humility helped him to find ways to divert attention from himself when people, realizing the power of his blessings, flocked to him in such numbers that he couldn't attend to his own duties. Lest the extraordinary happen then and there, he often advised people to make a novena or to recite certain prayers for a period of days, thus setting the time when the Madonna would grant the grace. And thus seeing to it that the favors were received in distant localities, he aimed at making his assurances of a cure less striking. Remarkably, his petitioner's prayers were answered on the day and month he designated. The Madonna left that up to him. Equally effective were the letters he sent with a holy picture of Mary, help of Christians, as demonstrated by the grateful thanks he received from everywhere. Don Bosco said, It must be remembered, though, that recovery is sometimes refused because it would do the soul no good and at times it is granted partially so that the sick person may acquire greater merit. The following incident, written down by an anonymous hand, illustrates this point. In 1868, my mother and I called on Don Bosco. I sought his blessing because, at 25, 
I was afflicted with a relentless fever, slight but resistant to treatment, which drained me of my strength. The saintly priest suggested a simple laxative and asked me to recite five paters, aves, and glorias for about a month until the Feast of the Assumption. His smile and confidence made me certain that I would be cured. Before dismissing me, he gave me a booklet and a medal, and then had me kneel and say three Hail Marys with him. He prayed while standing, all the while resting his hand firmly on my head. When I arose, he looked sad. Don't be surprised if you'll always have some ailment, he said. The blessing I gave you may not help you physically, but it will help you spiritually. Still, just do as I said. I left somewhat disheartened, but took the laxative and recited the prayers. On the Feast of the Assumption, I felt worse than ever, but later I gradually improved. My fever, though, still bothered me quite often. In fact, I can truthfully say that since my visit to Don Bosco, I haven't had one single day of perfect health. I am convinced that as we were saying the three Hail Marys, Don Bosco saw that I would have to sacrifice the health of my body for the good of my soul. Father Joachim Berto testified as follows. One morning in 1868, two unknown ladies came to the oratory to see Don Bosco. As they were ushered into his room, he smilingly said to one, Have no fear of becoming a nun. Be sure that it's God's will. Shortly afterward, the two ladies left, visibly moved. Curious, I asked Don Bosco why they were crying. You see, he replied, those two ladies are sisters. One wants to become a nun, and the other opposes her. They agreed to seek my advice. But why were they crying? Because I gave them the answer to their question before they could say a word. It really affected them. How did you know the problem? Uh, you asked too many questions. I had a dream last night and saw those two ladies come to me and ask my opinion on that very matter. As soon as they walked in, I recognized them and simply repeated the advice I had given them in my dream. Other similar instances are recorded in the archives. Don Bosco was also endowed with an admirable spirit of prophecy. For instance, one evening at supper, he told this dream to several at the table with him, including Father Berto. I saw an oratory boy lying on the floor in the middle of his dormitory amid blunted knives, pistols, rifles, and severed human limbs. He was dying. What happened? I asked. Can't you tell? He replied. I committed murder, and in a few hours I shall be executed. I know that boy, Don Bosco went on. I'll strive to straighten him out and make him devout and good-hearted, but his nasty disposition makes me truly fear that he will come to a sad end. Eventually, this boy joined the army, shot an officer, and had to face a firing squad. Fortunately, he repented and devoutly received the last sacraments. Around that time, there was a rare phenomenon that was observed by the oratory boys who interpreted the event as a good sign. Father Berta reports, One evening after supper, I was with some boys near the bindery when a nearby group of youngsters cried out, Look up there! I looked up. A red globe about five inches in diameter was gliding forward some twelve feet above the roof of the classroom building, slightly zigzagging and wavering at the speed of a sparrow darting from place to place. 
It cruised over the study hall, Don Bosco's room, and the rest of the building near the belfry of the old church, and then continued its flight almost as far as the railroad tracks, leaving a white tapering tail that faded away into white smoke at its far end. The boys were playing, and a lot of them stopped to watch it, mystified by such a phenomenon. Thus ended Father Berta's account. However, I remember another time that the boys spotted a fiery ball floating around the oratory, but it meant that Our Lady was displeased with the boys' conduct. If you'd like to hear that story, just click on the video that should appear on the screen. Thank you all so much for watching. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. December 22, 1876 was a date that made history at Don Bosco's oratory, for it was on that day that he would relate one of the most epic supernatural visions of his entire life. In this three-part series, we'll relate how Don Bosco received prophetic messages in his mystical dream from St. Dominic Savio, his beloved pupil who had died some 20 years earlier. But because the dream showed that some oratory boys who seemed to be among the best were actually morally bad, it gave Don Bosco cause for misgivings that it might be a mere hallucination. That's why, before narrating it, he had summoned several boys to his room in order to ascertain the truth. Hence, too, he delayed two weeks before revealing his vision, and only when he felt quite sure that it had come from above did he speak. Time would eventually corroborate the predictions in the dream, including those about his order of Salesians. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Don Bosco stepped up to the platform, and as usual, when he came to give the goodnight talk to the entire community, he was greeted by enthusiastic applause. As soon as he began to speak, a profound silence fell. When I fell asleep the first night I was at Lanzo, he began, I had a dream which is totally different from all the previous ones. I did narrate a dream somewhat like this during the spiritual retreat, but since you were not all present, and this is quite different, I have decided to recount it to you. It's quite strange. However, as you know, I bear my very heart to my sons and keep no secrets from them. So give this dream whatever consideration you wish, but because St. Paul says, test everything, retain what is good, if you should happen to find something in this dream that is beneficial to your soul, make good use of it. Those who don't want to believe it don't have to. But let no one ever hold up to ridicule what I am about to say. Furthermore, I ask you not to tell any outsider and not to write home about it. Dreams are to be given the importance they deserve. Those who don't know how close we are to each other might well misjudge the whole thing. They don't realize that you're my children and I tell you everything I know, and even sometimes things I don't know. There was general laughter at that. Whatever a father tells his beloved sons for their own good should stay between them and go no further. There's another reason too. If the dream were to be told to outsiders, more often than not the facts could be twisted or presented out of context. This could be harmful and lead people to regard as worthless what instead is important. As you know, dreams come in one sleep. So during the night hours of December 6th, while I was in my room, whether reading or pacing back and forth or resting in bed, I'm not quite sure, 
I began dreaming. It suddenly seemed to me that I was standing on a small mound or hillock on the rim of a broad plain, so far reaching that the eye couldn't compass its boundaries, lost in vastness. All was blue, blue as the calmest sea, though what I saw wasn't water. It resembled a highly polished, sparkling sea of glass. Stretching out beneath, behind, and on either side of me was an expanse of what looked like a seashore. Broad, imposing avenues divided the plain into grand gardens of indescribable beauty, each broken up by thickets, lawns, and flower beds of varied shapes and colors. None of the plants we know could ever give you an idea of those flowers, although there was a resemblance of sorts. The very grass, the flowers, the trees, the fruit, all were of singular and magnificent beauty. Leaves were of gold, trunks and boughs were of diamonds, and every tiny detail was in keeping with this wealth. The various kinds of plants were beyond counting. Each species and every single plant sparkled with a brilliance of its own. Scattered throughout those gardens and spread over the entire plain, I could see countless buildings whose architecture, magnificence, harmony, grandeur, and size were so unique that one could say all the treasures of earth could not suffice to build a single one. If only my boys had one such house, I said to myself, how they would love it, how happy they would be, and how much they would enjoy being there. Thus ran my thoughts as I gazed upon the exterior of those buildings, but how much greater must their inner splendor have been. As I stood there basking in the splendor of those gardens, I suddenly heard music, most sweet, so delightful and enchanting a melody that I could never adequately describe it. Compared with it, the compositions of Father Cagliero and Brother Doliani are hardly music at all. A hundred thousand instruments played, each with its own sound, uniquely different from all others, and every possible sound set the air alive with its resonant waves. Blended with them were the songs of choristers. In those gardens, I looked upon a multitude of people enjoying themselves happily, some singing, others playing, but every voice, every note had the effect of a thousand different instruments playing together. At one and the same time, if you can imagine such a thing, one could hear all the notes of the chromatic scale from the deepest to the highest, yet all in perfect harmony. Ah, yes. We have nothing on earth to compare with that symphony. One could tell from the expressions of those happy faces that the singers not only took the deepest pleasure in singing, but also received vast joy in listening to the others. The more they listened, the more vibrant became their yearning to hear more. And this was their song, Salus Honor, Gloria Deo Patri Omnipotenti, etc., when translated, it was salvation, honor, and glory to Almighty God the Father, the Creator who was, who is, and who will come to judge the living and the dead forever and ever. As I listened enthralled to that heavenly choir, I saw an endless multitude of boys approaching me. Many I recognized as having been at the oratory and in our other schools, but by far the majority of them were total strangers to me. Their endless ranks drew closer, headed by Dominic Savio, who was followed immediately by Father Alessonati, Father Chiala, Father Ghiotto, and many, many other clerics and priests, 
each leading a squad of boys. I kept asking myself, am I sleeping or am I awake? I clapped my hands and felt myself to make sure that I was seeing reality. Once that host of boys got some eight or 10 paces from me, they halted. There was a flash of light far brighter than before. The music stopped and a hushed silence fell over all. A most radiant joy encompassed all those boys and sparkled in their eyes, their countenance aglow with happiness. They looked and smiled at me very pleasantly, as though anxious to speak, but no one said a word. Dominic Savio stepped forward a pace or two, standing so close to me that had I stretched out my hand, I would surely have touched him. He too was silent and gazed upon me with a smile. How wonderful he looked. His garments were altogether unique. The snow-white tunic which he wore down to his feet was studded with diamonds, and there were threads of gold running through it. About his waist was fastened a broad red sash, so thickly embroidered with precious gems that they almost overlapped each other, and sewn into such a charming design with such brilliance of colors that, just looking at them, I could feel myself quite lost in admiration. From his neck hung a necklace woven of exotic but not natural flowers, whose petals seemed to be clusters of diamonds set into stems of gold. And so it was with everything else. Those flowers flashed with a preternatural sparkle brighter than the very sun, which was then brilliantly burning in all the glory of a spring morning. Their blinding sparkles reflected from Dominic's candid, ruddy countenance in an indescribable manner, so brilliant indeed that their individual species were undetectable. A crown of roses encircled his head. His hair fell down in waves to his shoulders, giving him such a handsome and lovely charm that he seemed, he seemed an angel. While enunciating these last few words, Don Bosco seemed to be at a loss for suitable expressions, punctuating them with a gesture which defies description and a tone of voice which moved his listeners. It was as if he had exhausted himself in an effort to find words that would fully convey his idea. He paused momentarily and then went on. The other persons too were aglow with light, dressed as they all were in different but always glittering garments. Some more colorful than others, each garment symbolizing something that exceeded human understanding. However, all wore the same red sash about the waist. I kept staring and wondering, what can it all mean? How did I ever manage to get here? With no idea where I was, beside myself and shaking with awe, I dared not take a step forward. The others all remained silent. At last, Dominic Savio spoke. Why do you stand there silent, as though you were almost devitalized, he asked. Aren't you the one who once feared nothing, holding your ground against slander, persecution, hostility, hardships, and dangers of all sorts? Where's your courage? Say something. I forced myself to reply in a stammer. I, I, I don't know what to say. Are you Dominic Savio? Yes, I am. Don't you know me anymore? If you'd like to hear the rest of this dream, please come back Wednesday for the second part. Thank you all so much for watching. God bless you and Our Lady keep you. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco 
a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Don Bosco's Dream of Dominic Savio, part two. Are you Dominic Savio? I asked. Yes, I am. Don't you know me anymore? How come you're here? I asked, still bewildered. Savio spoke affectionately. I came to talk with you. We spoke together so often on Earth. Do you not recall how much you loved me? Or how many tokens of friendship you gave me? And how kind you were to me? And did I not return the warmth of your love? How much trust I placed in you. So why are you tongue-tied? Why are you shaking? Come, ask me a question or two. Summoning my courage, I replied, I'm shaking because I don't know where I am. Why, you're in the abode of happiness, Savio answered, where one experiences every joy, every delight. Is this the reward of the just? No, not at all. Here we don't enjoy supernatural happiness, but only a natural one, though greatly magnified. Everything here, then, is natural? Yes, only enhanced by God's power. Oh, I exclaimed. I thought this was paradise. Oh, no, 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 Savio answered. No human eye can look upon the beauty of paradise. And this music, I asked, is it the music which you enjoy in heaven? No, no, absolutely not. Are these then natural sounds? Yes, of course, but brought to perfection by God's infinite power. And this light which outshines the sun's brilliance, is it a supernatural light? Is it a heavenly light? It is only natural light, fortified and perfected by God's omnipotence. Might I be allowed to see a little supernatural light? No one can see it until he has come to see God as he is. The faintest ray of that light would instantly strike one dead because the human senses aren't sturdy enough to endure it. Could there possibly be a natural light lovelier than this? Oh yes, but if you could only see a single ray of natural light increased by just one degree, you would go into an ecstasy. Might I not see at least one tiny ray of this brighter light? Yes, of course you may. I'll give you a proof of what I say. Open your eyes. They are open, I answered. Pay close attention, then, and look out toward the farthest end of that crystal sea. I looked. Instantly from the remotest heavens, a sudden streak of light flashed through space, fine as a thread, but so brilliant, so piercing, that my gaze faltered in pain. I shut my eyes and screamed loud enough to wake Father Lemoyne. He's here now who was sleeping in the next room. In the morning, he asked me in fright what had happened to me during the night to have so upset me. That filament of light was a hundred million times brighter than the sun. Its brilliance could have lit up our entire universe. After some moments, I opened my eyes again. What was that? I asked Dominic. Was not that a heavenly beam? No, it wasn't a supernatural light, Dominic replied, though ever so much superior in brilliance than the light of the world. It was nothing more than earthly light rendered ever so dazzling by God's power. Even if a vast array of light as strong as the ray you saw at the end of that crystal sea were to cover the whole world, it would still not give you an idea of the splendors of paradise. Then what do you enjoy in paradise? Ah, that defies all telling. 
the happiness of heaven no mortal beings can ever know until they die and are united to their maker. We enjoy God, nothing else. By now, I had fully recovered from my initial bewilderment and was taken up with admiring Dominic Savio's beauty. Why are you wearing that white sparkling robe? I asked him frankly. Giving no sign of wanting to respond, Savio remained silent. But the choir, accompanied by all the instruments, sang, They have girded themselves, and have washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. And why, I asked as the music ended, are you wearing that red sash about your waist? Again, Savio didn't reply, and motioned that he did not wish to answer. It was Father Alessonati who then began to sing by himself. They are virgins, he sang, and follow the Lamb wherever he goes. I then understood that Dominic's blood-red sash was a symbol of the great sacrifices, the strenuous efforts, and the near martyrdom he had endured to preserve the virtue of purity, and that, to remain chaste in God's eyes, he would have given up his life if the circumstances had warranted it. It was also a symbol of penance, which cleanses the soul of guilt. In addition, the shining whiteness of his robe signified the baptismal innocence which he had preserved. Entranced by the singing and gazing upon those endless ranks of heavenly youths massed behind Dominic Savio, I asked him, Who are they? Then turning, I asked, Why are all of you so resplendent with light? Savio continued to remain silent, and all his companions broke into song. They are like God's angels in heaven, they sang. I had noticed, meanwhile, that Savio seemed to enjoy a certain preeminence over that assembly, which kept at a respectful distance, some ten paces behind him. Tell me, Savio, I said, you're the youngest of this entire following and of those who have died in our houses. Why then are you at their head as their leader? Why are you their spokesman while they're all silent? I am the oldest of them all. Oh no, I countered. Many of them are a good deal older than you. I am the oldest of the oratory, Dominic Savio repeated, because I was the first to leave the world and enter into this life. Besides, I am God's ambassador. This answer made the reason for the apparition clear to me. He was God's envoy. Well then, I said, let us speak of the things which most concern us at this moment. Yes, and be quick. Ask me whatever you wish to know. Hours go by, and the time I have been given to speak with you may run out, and you might not see me again. I'm convinced you have something of supreme importance to tell me. What could I ever tell you? I, a poor creature, Savio said with the deepest humility. From on high, I was given the mission to speak with you. That's why I'm here. Then I exclaimed, tell me of the past, the present, and of the future of the oratory. Tell me something about my dear sons. Talk to me of my congregation. There are so many things I could tell you about that. Well, then, reveal to me the things you know. Tell me about the past. All the past is your responsibility, Savio replied. Well, have I made any blunders? As to the past, he answered, I will say that your congregation has already accomplished a great deal of good. Do you see that countless multitude of boys there? Yes, there are so many, I answered. How happy they look. Observe, he went on. 
Do you see what is written at the gateway of that garden? I do. It says Silesian Garden. Well then, Savia went on, those who are there were all Silesians or Silesian pupils. They were saved by you or your priests and clerics. Or there are those whom you directed on the path of their vocation. Count them if you can. Still, there would be a hundred million times more if you only had greater faith and trust in the Lord. I sighed in dismay. I had no excuse for his reproach, but still resolved with all my heart, I shall endeavor to have this faith and trust in the future. Then I inquired, what of the present? Savio held out a gorgeous bouquet of roses, violets, sunflowers, gentians, lilies, evergreens, perennials, and sprigs of wheat, and he handed it to me. Look at these flowers, he said. I am looking, I replied, but I don't know what you mean. Give this bouquet to your sons, so that when the time comes, they may offer it to the Lord. See to it that everyone has it, that no one is without it, and that no one steals it from them. Do this, and you can rest assured that they will have enough to make them happy. What do these flowers symbolize? I asked. They symbolize the virtues which most delight the Lord. Which are? I asked. Well, the rose is the symbol of charity, the violet of humility, the sunflower of obedience, the gentian of penance and self-denial, and the wheat stalks of frequent communion. Then the lily stands for the beautiful virtue of chastity, of which it is written, Edunt sicut angeli dei in cello. They shall be like God's angels in heaven. Finally, the evergreens and perennials tell you that these virtues must endure forever. They denote perseverance. Very well, my dear Savio, I answered. Now tell me, you who practiced all these virtues in your lifetime, what comforted you the most at the moment of your death? What do you think it was? Savio prompted. Perhaps having preserved the beautiful virtue of purity. Not that alone. Having your conscience at peace. That too is a good thing, but it's still not the best. Perhaps the hope of paradise. No, not even that. Well, was it the treasury of good deeds you had stored up? No, no. Well, what was it then? I pleaded with him, nonplussed at having failed to fathom his thought. The one thing that consoled me at the hour of my death, Savio answered, was the assistance of the mighty and lovely mother of the Savior. Tell your sons never to forget to pray to her as long as they live. But now hurry if you want me to answer more questions. Well, what can you tell me about the future? I asked. And to hear the answer to that question, please come back Friday for the final part of this dream. Thank you all so much for watching. God bless you and Our Lady keep you. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Don Bosco's Dream of Dominic Savio, Part 3. What can you tell me about the future? I asked. In the coming year of 1877, he responded, you will have a painful sorrow to endure. Six, and then two more of those dearest to you will be summoned into eternity. But be comforted for they will be transplanted from this world to the gardens of heaven. They will receive their crown, 
and don't be worried, for the Lord will be your help and will give you other good sons. God's will be done, I said, and what will happen to the congregation? The Lord is preparing great things for you. In the coming year, your congregation will see a dawn of glory so resplendent that it will light up the four corners of the earth. A great splendor lies in the offing, but see to it that the Lord's chariot is not led by your Salesians off its course, out of its set path. If your priests will guide it in a manner worthy of their lofty calling, the future of your congregation will be most glorious and will bring salvation to endless multitudes of people. There is but one condition, that your sons be devoted to the Blessed Virgin Mary and that all of them learn to preserve the virtue of chastity, which so delights God. Now I would like you to tell me about the church in general, I continued. The church's destiny is in the hands of God, our maker. I cannot tell you what he has determined in his infinite decrees. To himself alone, he keeps such mysteries, and no heavenly creature can ever share that knowledge. What will happen to Pius IX, I asked him. All I can tell you, he replied, is that the church's shepherd will not have much longer to do battle here on earth. Few are the combats he must still win. Soon he will be taken from his see, and the Lord will grant him his well-earned reward. The rest you know, the church will not die. Is there anything else you want to know? What will happen to me, I asked. If you only knew how many tribulations still await you, he responded. But hurry now, for the time allotted me to speak to you is drawing to a close. Impulsively, I stretched out my hands to clutch those of that blessed youth, but the hands were no firmer than thin air, and I grasped nothingness. How foolish, Dominic said with a smile. What are you trying to do? I'm afraid to lose you, I exclaimed. Are you not really here in the flesh? Not in my flesh. One day I will take that up again. But what is it that I see? You have Dominic Savio's features. You are Dominic Savio. Look, he said, when a soul separated from the body is allowed by God to reveal itself to a human, it retains its features just as it had them in the flesh, though considerably enhanced in beauty until it is reunited to the body on the day of the universal judgment. From then on, soul and body will again be together. That's why I seem to have hands, feet, and head. But you cannot grasp me because I am pure spirit. You only recognize me because of the features that I am allowed to retain in order to be seen. I understand, I answered. I have one more question. Are all my boys on the path of salvation? Tell me how to guide them. The boys whom divine providence has entrusted to your care can be divided into three groups. Take a look at these three sheets of paper. He held out one to me. I looked at the first. It bore one word, invulnerati, unscathed, that is, those whom the devil had not been able to harm, those who never lost their baptismal innocence. There was a great number of them, and I saw them all. Many I personally knew. Many others I was seeing for the first time, perhaps boys who will come to the oratory in future years. They were all moving forward unswervingly along a narrow path, regardless of the arrows and swords and spears that were continually being hurled at them from everywhere. These weapons bristled like hedges on both sides of their path 
threatening and harassing, but never wounding them. Savio then handed me a second sheet. It bore the word vulnerati, wounded. That is, those who had fallen into sin, but had risen to their feet again, healed of their wounds after repentance and confession. Their number was considerably greater than the first. They had been wounded on their passage through life by the enemies who had lined their way. I scanned the list of their names and saw them all. Many dragged themselves along, bent over and disheartened. Savio still held a third sheet in his hand. But before we hear what it was labeled, I'd just like to say that if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, just click on the link in the description below. Or you can wait till the end of the video and click on the logo that should appear on the screen. The third sheet was labeled Lasati in Via Iniquitatis, exhausted on the path of iniquity. It bore the names of all those boys who at that moment were in the state of sin. Impatient to know the contents of that last, I put out my hand, but Savio quickly held the note back. Wait a moment, he said, and listen. Once you open this note, such a stench will come out that it will overcome us both and make the angels withdraw in disgust and horror. The Holy Spirit himself cannot stand the offensive odor of sin. How can this be, I objected, since God and his angels are impassable? How can they smell a material stench? They can, he answered. The purer and holier a creature is, the more it resembles a heavenly spirit. But the filthier and more sinful one is, the further he moves from God and his angels, who in turn withdraw from him, an object of disgust and loathing. He then gave me the note. Take it, he said, and use it for the good of your boys, but don't forget the bouquet of flowers which I have given you. Make sure that everyone has it and does not lose it. Giving me the list, he hastily withdrew and joined his companions. I opened it. I saw 110 names, but in an instant there flashed before my eyes all the lads therein mentioned, just as real as if they were standing there in front of me. With grief, I saw all of them. Most I knew personally as belonging to this oratory and to our other schools. I also noticed quite a few who rate as good boys and even some who rank among the very best, but are not so at all. Then as I opened that note, an unbearable stench emanated from it. An atrocious headache immediately seized me and I felt so sick to my stomach that I thought I would die. The whole sky darkened. The vision vanished, and nothing was left of that wonderful sight. Suddenly a bolt of lightning flashed with a crash of thunder so deafening and frightening that I awoke in a cold sweat. That stench penetrated the very walls and got into all my clothing. It was so much so that for days afterward I could still detect its foulness. Even the name of the sinner is truly foul in God's eyes. Even now, no sooner do I recall that stench than I begin to shudder and choke, and my stomach turns over with retching. There at Lanzo, where I had this dream, I began to call in some boys, and soon realized that my dream was no dream at all, but rather a very special favor of God that enabled me to know each one's state of soul. Of this, however, I shall say nothing in public. There are also several points which need clearing up, but I will put this off to some other evening. Now, let me just wish you a good night.
Everyone thunderously replied, thank you, Don Bosco. And I thank you all for watching this episode. God bless you and Our Lady keep you. The first prediction in this dream concerned his beloved sons who were to die in 1877. The oratory records of that year bear the symbolic cross beside the names of six boys and two clerics. Another prediction concerned the forthcoming death of Pope Pius IX, who did in fact die 14 months later. The last prediction for Don Bosco, if you only knew how many tribulations still await you, came true as well. Don Bosco's last 11 years and two months were packed with ceaseless struggles, travails, and sacrifices to his very dying breath. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. St. John Bosco and the Conversion of a Jew one day in 1847, as Don Bosco was making the rounds in St. John's Hospital in Turin, the Mother Superior, Sister Seraphim, told him of a Jewish patient in his early twenties who seemed interested in becoming a Christian. Don Bosco gave the nuns some wise suggestions on how to begin religious instruction without getting into any controversy. In her friendly talks with the young man, Sister Seraphim, among other things, told him about Don Bosco and especially of his fatherly care for boys, pointing out what he had done and was doing for their welfare in Turin. The young man listened with growing interest and soon became quite anxious to meet Don Bosco. A few days later, Sister Seraphim, who had invited Don Bosco beforehand, went to the patient's room and said, I have some good news. I think Don Bosco has just come in and is making the rounds in our ward. If you want to meet him, I'll introduce him to you. I'm sure his visit will do you good. Yes, of course, I'd be very glad to see him, replied the young man. As Don Bosco came into his room, the young man arose from his chair and politely removed his cap. Something about his gentle, refined appearance hinted at a secret sorrow. After a few questions, Don Bosco sensed that he was dealing with a sensitive youth of sterling qualities. This first visit was a short one, but it paved the way for many others, longer and spiritually fruitful. As the young man came to know Don Bosco better, he began to feel a deep liking for him and told him his life story. His name was Abraham, and he had been born in Amsterdam of wealthy parents. Very intelligent, a top student, and the idol of his family, he had easy access to amusements, travel, and comforts. Nevertheless, he had always led a decent, upright life. Abraham had an older sister, Rachel, of whom he was very fond. She secretly desired to become a Christian. From books on religion, which she read secretly or through contact with some Catholics, Rachel had learned about our faith and was gradually influencing her brother Abraham with Christian principles without his awareness. A few years older than her brother, Rachel, at 17, told her father that she wanted to become a Catholic and a sister of charity and asked his permission to go to France for that purpose. Her request infuriated him. Unable to shake her from her resolve, he forbade her to leave until she became of age. When that time came, he couldn't stop her, but he disinherited her and refused to give her any means of support. Her aunt, however, also Jewish, 
felt sorry for the girl and provided her dowry for admission to St. Vincent de Paul's Sisters of Charity in Paris. When Abraham learned that his sister wanted to become a Catholic and a nun, he took a sudden, bitter, violent dislike to her in the belief that she no longer cared for him. Nevertheless, the Christian principles she had instilled into him were strong enough to keep alive in him some gnawing doubts about his own faith. Abraham's mother was quick to grasp his misgivings. In order to strengthen his faith, she would often tell him stories from the Talmud to impress upon him the terrible punishments visited upon Jews who changed their religion. But Abraham gave them little credence and kept repeating, Why should I fear a witch who you say lived in the days of Adam? This is most likely the dreaded Lilith of Jewish lore. He said, If she still exists, as you claim, she must be pretty old by now, and so I don't think she can do me any harm. Abraham's father, who was quite superstitious, seeing his favorite son stray further and further from his ancestral faith, and at times even belittle some of its precepts, called in a learned rabbi to show him his error. Abraham's intelligence, however, gave the rabbi a hard time, especially when they discussed the eternal kingdom promised by God to David. He asked the rabbi where this kingdom was at the present time, repeatedly quoting Moses as saying, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the staff from between his feet, until he, the Messiah, comes to whom it belongs, as it says in Genesis. Now if the Messiah has not yet come, insisted Abraham, where is our kingdom of Judah? And if the kingdom of Judah is no more, isn't that a sign that the Messiah has already come? Try as he might, the rabbi was unable to answer him convincingly on this point. The father loved Abraham as a favorite child. Seeing his constant restlessness and deep interest in religion, he sent him to Protestant ministers in the hope that they would clear his doubts and satisfy his intellectual curiosity without endangering his faith. It was useless, for they rather tried to draw him to their own persuasion. Abraham wasn't impressed. He considered a religion without sacrifice or ritual, without unity and unquestioned doctrine, as no religion at all. In their determination to win him over, they undermined his morals, and unfortunately, Abraham was too weak to resist. As a result of his dissolute life, he contracted a pulmonary disease. As soon as the first symptoms appeared, Abraham developed a violent hatred against the Christian faith, realizing that the cause of his disease lay in the evil advice he had received. He complained bitterly to his father for having referred him to those ministers, but his father answered, "'You wanted to know about Christianity, and I sent you to its teachers.'" In Amsterdam, at that time, Christian meant Protestant. Such were the courts, the churches, and society in general. Catholics were so few and unknown that he had never even heard of them or their religion. When his sister Rachel had turned Christian, Abraham had assumed that she had joined the Protestants. As his illness persisted, his parents decided to send him to Vienna for treatment by the most renowned physicians. There he spent some time in several hospitals, receiving the best and most expensive care. Since there was no improvement, the doctors decided to try a change of climate and sent him first to Innsbruck and then to Turin. The illness was now clearly diagnosed as tuberculosis. 
At first, some wealthy Jewish relatives of his welcomed him, but then, fearing for the health of their own children, they sent him to Kieti, where his condition progressively worsened. He had to go back to his relatives in Turin, and after a few days, they set him up in a private room at St. John's Hospital. It was here that he had the good fortune to meet Don Bosco. In his first visits, Don Bosco made no mention of religion. He broached the subject only after he was sure of the boy's friendship. Abraham then realized his error in identifying Christianity with Protestantism, and he couldn't help admiring the beauty of Catholic doctrine. Soon, however, his family learned of Don Bosco's long visits and took steps to prevent their son's conversion. They hired private nurses to watch him day and night, and from then on, it became very difficult for Don Bosco to visit Abraham and discuss religion with him. At first, the young man was rather distressed, but soon he found out that one of the nurses spoke only French and German, whereas he spoke English perfectly, as did Sister Seraphim. So they agreed to continue his religious instruction in English, with neither of the nurses being the wiser for it. Don Bosco coached Sister Seraphim and provided her with suitable books, such as Paolo de' Medici's Talks to the Jews and The Jews by Father Vincenzo Rosso, two works intended to prove that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, had already come. The two nurses couldn't understand a word of what was being said, but, suspecting what was afoot, told their employer, to whom Abraham's father had given explicit orders to prevent the boy's conversion to Catholicism. As a result, they tried to move him again to Chieti, but not even the offer of a generous recompense could overcome the reluctance of the families there to accept the patient in their homes. Meanwhile, the illness was approaching its terminal stage, and Abraham's relatives kept a close watch. After being informed of his turn for the worse, the father ordered his son returned to Amsterdam no matter what the consequences. The doctors, however, refused to comply. The patient was so weak and so little life remained in him that he would have surely died on the trip. At last, his kin in Turin, realizing that nothing could save him, overcome by their fear of dying, made themselves scarce and left him alone. Seizing the propitious moment, Father Rossi, the chaplain, baptized Abraham, gave him first communion, and administered the anointing of the sick at two in the morning. His relatives were told nothing. A few days later, Don Bosco was on his way to pay Abraham a visit when a patient in one of the wards asked him, Are you by any chance going to see Abraham? Yes. He died last night. The young man had been in the hospital six months. Thirty-five years later, Don Bosco happened to be in Paris. He called on the Sisters of Charity and asked whether, in their convent, there was a nun from Amsterdam, a convert from the Jewish faith. Yes, Sister Rachel is still here, said the sister who opened the door. Would you kindly tell her I have some news of her brother? Her brother? Did he die as a Catholic then? His sister did hear some rumors to that effect, but nothing definite. I can vouch for it. When may I see Sister Rachel? Well, could you come to say Mass for us tomorrow? In the meantime, I'll tell Sister Superior. How thrilled Sister Rachel will be. Don Bosco kept his appointment. 
Rachel was overjoyed at meeting the priest who had been the Lord's instrument in leading her dear brother to his eternal salvation. She now learned that the seed she had sown so many years before had borne the fruit of everlasting life. Don Bosco said mass and preached. It was indeed a day of great joy for Sister Rachel and the whole community. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to hear more stories about conversions, just click on this video here or this video here. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. In the year of our Lord, 1847, while Don Bosco was saying mass in town at the convent of the Good Shepherd, one of the nuns let out a scream at the elevation of the host, jolting the whole community. Don Bosco was taken aback and barely managed to go on. When the nun later came to the oratory to apologize for the commotion, he asked her, what happened? I saw our Lord and the host looking like a child dripping with blood, she replied. What does that mean? asked Don Bosco. I have no idea, she said. Know then, replied Don Bosco, that a bitter persecution is being staged against the church. And this dismal prediction was fulfilled only a few weeks later and will be the subject of today's episode. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Il Jesuita Moderno, the modern Jesuit, was a seven-volume work by Vincenzo Gioberti, a liberal Catholic priest of the time who was a revolutionary in favor of the unification of Italy. The volumes had been printed in Switzerland, smuggled into Piedmont, and were being widely circulated. In a paroxysm of hatred and a flood of vulgarity, Gioberti had drawn on every slanderous and scurrilous statement against the Society of Jesus by all kinds of heretics and unbelievers of the past two centuries, even though at that time the Jesuits were blameless and in fact were doing great things for Christendom. Parading as a zealous paladin of sound doctrine, he balanced violent insults against the Jesuits with lavish praise for the papacy in order to draw down everybody's condemnation on the Jesuits. Here enters another character from that time who you should know about, Giuseppe Mazzini, a political activist for the unification of Italy and spearhead of the Italian revolutionary movement. He had given secret directives to his followers on October 1846, among them Gioberti. He said, raise an uproar against the Jesuits. They personify the clergy. Clerical power is embodied in the Jesuits. The hatred inspired by this name must be fully exploited by socialists. Keep that in mind. Gioberti's defamatory attacks were also directed at prominent churchmen and members of the laity. He attacked the Sisters of St. Dorothy, whom Don Bosco greatly praised and supported. In fact, I'll link an episode above on a miracle that he performed for their order. But they weren't the only ones Gioberti attacked. He didn't spare the Sacred Heart Sisters, producing a vile pack of lies about them, outdoing any hack writer of cheap fiction. This liar also turned his guns on the Convito Ecclesiastico, which was a finishing school for priests that Don Bosco himself had attended and often praised. Gioberti attacked the institution's leader, saying that Father Guala was, at heart, a Jesuit and had so shaped his institution. 
He charged further that an all too lax morality was being taught at the school and that it was nothing but a factory of lies, a hotbed of error, a workshop of prayers, a hangout for politicians and the like. If that was true, how did it turn out such wonderful men as St. John Bosco or St. Joseph Cafasso, the priest of the gallows? Gioberti's books created a violent stir in Italy and abroad. The secret societies hailed them as stupendous works, long needed and destined for enduring fame. His name was proclaimed in the streets and cafes, praised and exalted to the skies by an ignorant populace aroused by agitators. Busts and portraits of this infernal fake philosopher were displayed everywhere, and no effort was spared to spread the ideas contained in the Jesuita Moderna. Its primary purpose was to create a public opinion hostile to religious orders, and thus prepare the climate for the removal of religious from public or private schools. The secret societies were confident that victory would be theirs. However, their least expected adversary, Don Bosco's oratory of St. Francis de Sales, was steadily rising in Valdoco. He would counter every move made by Mazzini and Gioberti. The Pope, Mazzini had said, both on principle and from necessity, will lead in making reforms. Take advantage of his slightest concession and assemble the masses, even if it's only for them to express their gratitude with festivities, songs, and meetings. Make the people realize their power and keep demanding more and more. As soon as you have won the passage of one liberal law, shout your approval and demand another. Unfortunately, Pope Pius IX, though well-intentioned and eager to promote the people's welfare, did grant some of the freedoms which they seemed to desire the most. Immediately, impressive mass demonstrations were held to thank him and loudly demand more reforms. News from Rome re-echoed in turn with frenzied demonstrations, and long live Pius IX was being heard everywhere in the streets. Naturally, loud hosannas to the Pope were also heard at the oratory, all the more so because Don Bosco always spoke of him respectfully and with the greatest esteem. Hence, they frequently shouted, long live Pius IX, and this occasion was no different. They were somewhat taken aback when Don Bosco corrected them, saying, don't say long live Pius IX, but long live the Pope. But why, they asked, isn't Pius IX the Pope? Of course he is, Don Bosco answered. To you it sounds the same, but certain people are trying to distinguish between the sovereign of Rome and the Pope, the political ruler, and the vicar of Christ. They praise the man, but I see no evidence on their part of reverence for the dignity with which he is invested. So if we want to be on the safe side, let's shout, long live the Pope. Then all the boys would repeat, long live the Pope. In just changing a few words, Don Bosco knew that his boys would be interpreted as saying, long live the papacy. Instead of praising the man himself, he was praising the institution. More than once, on Sundays, at a time when political and religious feelings ran high, several laymen visited the oratory. They were considered to be practicing Catholics, but liberals. They were enthused at seeing hundreds of lively youngsters. After expressing their admiration and encouragement, they invited the boys to shout, Long live Pius IX, and were rather disconcerted when 500 voices roared a thunderous, Long live the Pope! 
the boys had not forgotten Don Bosco's lesson. Indeed, to impress it on their minds even more strongly, he placed placards throughout the oratory, exhorting the boys to obey the Pope, to accept with respect his orders, and to revere his authority. The placards carried these inscriptions, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. I am with you all days, even to the end of the world. Feed my lambs. At that time, some leaflets were being spread by rabid revolutionaries. They read, now is the time to start shouting, long live Pius IX, but never long live the Pope. Smear the Jesuits, praise good priests, encourage them and try to appeal to their vanity by showering praises on them. But as for bad priests, consider it a great achievement to win them to our cause. Consequently, the order of the day in Turin's Masonic lodges was, be good to the priests. At the University of Turin, they shouted, long live our priests, long live our seminarians. Hence, it shouldn't be surprising that many of them joined the liberal movement in those days. While so many priests swallowed the bait of public flattery, there were others who were not taken in by this popular display of enthusiasm. First among them was Don Bosco, who was convinced that the many hosannas would soon be followed by as many cries of crucify them. In fact, he said, the revolution will proceed step by step and will carry out its program to the smallest detail. In our next episode, we'll hear how the revolutionaries made an attempt on St. John Bosco's life. So please subscribe and come back Friday. Those times aren't very different from our own when evil men seek to destroy the church on both sides of the Vatican wall. Now, in 2023, I proclaim with Don Bosco, long live the Pope. God bless you and Our Lady keep you. In this story, St. John Bosco deals with an anti-Catholic mob which ravaged his city of Turin. Inspired by Marxists and Freemasons, they wanted to remove all Catholic clergy from the education system. If you'd like to hear more about what gave rise to this riot, then you can watch another episode which I've linked above. But today, we're going to hear about an assassination attempt on St. John Bosco by a sniper. Let's go, boy. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima, I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Day in and day out in 1848, the Jesuits were made the target of a vicious stream of abuse and lies. A citizens committee sought an audience with the King of Italy to request their expulsion from the realm. He didn't receive the committee, nor would he grant their petition, and so the agitators took to the streets to express the will of the Freemasons. A mob of Piedmontese revolutionaries and outlaws from other Italian states literally ran riot on the night of May 2nd. Screaming bloody murder, smashing windows and doors, they invaded the Jesuit house adjacent to the Church of the Holy Martyrs and their school of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, driving them out into the street amid imprecations and insults from the mob. The police appeared when all was over. The following day, the rabble stormed the convent of the Sacred Heart, but that time, the police kept them from breaking in. The convent, however, was besieged for a week. 
In reply to the Mother Superior's appeal for protection, the Minister of the Interior sent word that the King could do nothing for them. Consequently, the sisters had to return to France. The Jesuits, forced to scatter to the four winds on that tragic night, sought refuge in private homes. Father Guala sheltered many of them in the nearby Convito Ecclesiastico and gave them sizable loans to meet their most urgent needs. Don Bosco, too, did all he could to help, especially by providing them with civilian clothes to get out of the city in disguise. It was none too soon, because mob fury was soon followed by police action, and all Jesuits were ordered out of the realm. They left unmolested, but in other parts of Italy, they were treated shamefully. Demonstrations were also staged against Marcio Nesparolo, founder of a Catholic boarding school for girls. The mob said that she had hidden 15 Jesuits in her residence. Her life was threatened, as though the girls sheltered in her institutions had been kidnapped from their parents and forcibly kept there. Such was the mob's gratitude for all her works of charity in Turin. Drunkards and loose women gathered in front of the refugio and hurled all sorts of insults, swearing to liberate the girls living there and burn the place to the ground. Their uproar could be heard at the oratory. Danger signs of new unrest among the seminarians, the imminence of war with Austria, and the disruption of studies at the University of Turin prompted Archbishop Franzoni to close the seminary. All seminarians who had taken part in political demonstrations were barred from sacred orders. Having been told of the archbishop's decision, many gathered in the courtyard and sang the popular Genoese patriotic anthem. So violent was the warmongering that many of the seminarians, giving up their priestly vocation, enlisted in the army. It was inevitable that these ugly events should adversely affect the oratory boys. After all, everywhere in town, within their own families and at their own jobs, they could not help hearing different opinions, some even favorable, about these demonstrations. Don Bosco tried privately and publicly to protect his boys against distorted judgments. He warned those in his care to never read the newspapers at that time because they were a bad influence. Although the book The Modern Jesuit hadn't been condemned by the church yet, Don Bosco forbade it for his catechists, teachers, and young students. He even read quotations from Gioberti's book, which lied about their very own oratory of St. Francis de Sales. None of them, either then or later when that book was placed on the index, ever dared read it. They all regarded its author as a sworn enemy of the church, even though he was a priest. Because of his position against Gioberti, Don Bosco became the target of insults and threats. Indeed, an incident took place which, from the very beginning of the ill-conceived ideas of liberty, endangered his life and thus threatened the very existence of the oratory. Sorry, it got too dark out there, so I had to switch to my studio. But before we continue with this story, I'd just like to say that if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, just click on the link in the description below. Or you can wait till the end of the video and click on the Mass logo that should appear on the screen. Early one Sunday evening in the spring of 1848, while the oratory boys were attending their respective catechism classes, Don Bosco was in the chapel behind the main altar instructing the older boys. His topic was the boundless love our Lord has shown us in his incarnation, passion, and death. He was standing near a little window, which was closed, 
and was only a few yards from the wall. The light through an open door threw his whole figure into bold relief. Some hate monger, armed with an old-fashioned musket, was hidden behind the wall. Hoisted on the shoulders of an accomplice, he leaned over the top of the wall, and when his target was clearly in view, fired straight for Don Bosco's heart. Fortunately, he missed. A loud scream followed the shattering blast, and then an awesome silence as the boys stared in mute surprise at Don Bosco, shock and terror marking their ashen faces. The bullet had pierced the window pane without breaking it and had passed harmlessly under Don Bosco's armpit, slightly tearing the side and sleeve of his cassock and embedding itself into the wall, causing a few inches of plaster to fall to the floor. All Don Bosco felt of the bullet was a slight pressure, as of someone tugging at his robe. Not in the least disconcerted, he showed such calm and presence of mind as to allay the fear gripping the boys. He reassured them with a smile. What? Are you afraid of a joke in poor taste? It's only a joke. Some scoundrels don't know any better. Look, they've ripped my cassock and damaged the wall. Oh well, let's get back to our catechism. Seeing him so jovial and realizing he was unheard by the criminal attempt, the boys became their usual selves. After class, Don Bosco calmly presided at Vespers, preached, gave benediction, and then joined his boys in the playground. Here, a moving scene took place. They crowded around him affectionately, weeping and sobbing with joy, wetting his hands with their tears and thanking God heartily for saving him so wondrously. Don Bosco, meanwhile, kept remarking, if the Blessed Virgin had not made him miss his aim, he would certainly have got me, but he was a bad shot. Then, looking at the rip in his cassock, he exclaimed, Oh, my poor cassock! That's the only one I've got! Meanwhile, one of his boys dug the bullet out of the wall and handed it to Don Bosco. It was a rather large pellet made to fit the rifles of those days. Don Bosco held it in his hand and showed it around, observing humorously, Look at that! Some inexperienced youngster wanted to play bocce, but he was a bad shot. There was no trace of the gunman who seemingly had disappeared behind the smoke of his own weapon. By discreet investigation, however, Don Bosco was able to discover the would-be assassin. He already had a criminal record and was then in the pay of a political group. He seemed quite certain to go unpunished. Had he perhaps been hired for the job? Don Bosco, who knew the man even before this incident, chanced upon him one day. Convinced that the culprit wouldn't dare to make a further attempt on his life once he realized that his identity was known, Don Bosco asked him abruptly why he had tried to shoot him. The would-be assassin was surprised, but not apologetic. Shrugging his shoulders, he replied brazenly, I really don't know. I guess I just wanted to see how deep the bullet would sink into the wall. You're a wretch, Don Bosco said pityingly, but I forgive you from the bottom of my heart. I wish we could be friends. Later, we shall recount other attempts on Don Bosco's life, especially when he began publishing the magazine Lechore Catalice to refute Protestant errors. It'll become evident that if this friend and father of youth wasn't murdered, it was only because God watched over him and often defended and protected him, even miraculously. If you'd like to hear about more attempts on St. John Bosco's life, just click on this playlist above me here. Oh yes, and if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions, just click on this other link. 
God bless you and Our Lady keep you. St. John Bosco often spoke of a large, beautiful gray dog that would frequently appear and save him from death. He named the dog Grigio, or the gray one, and I believe that this fantastic creature was a physical manifestation of Don Bosco's guardian angel. The more incredible the saint, the more the supernatural becomes an everyday occurrence in their life. And this channel has proved that Don Bosco's day was filled with miraculous and mystical events. The hand of God directly influenced him to form the Salesians and an order of nuns called the Daughters of Mary Help of Christians. With a saint as founder of their order, to whom apparitions were a regularity, it's not much of a stretch to conclude that they also experienced heavenly assistance. In short, Grigio the angel dog was documented to have appeared to the Salesian nuns three times, once in Assisi, once in Colombia, and once in France the last two occurring long after Don Bosco's death. In this video, I'll first narrate a story that'll give you a flavor of Don Bosco's interactions with Grigio, and then I'll narrate three accounts of his apparitions to Salesian nuns. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. It was just five years before leaving this earth that Don Bosco began his historic four-month tour of France, from January to May of 1883. He traveled at a somewhat relaxed pace through southern France, heading from there to Paris, the main goal of his journey. A happy and unexpected meeting awaited him on his return. Having tried in vain to hire a coach, he had to be content to walk all the way home. It had rained so heavily during the day that the growing darkness and the mud made walking hazardous. With his failing sight, Don Bosco could hardly see where to place his feet, when suddenly, who appeared before him but an old friend, the famous dog Grigio, whom he hadn't seen in 30 years. The friendly animal ran over to him, wagging his tail gleefully, and then he walked forward, keeping about a foot ahead of Don Bosco, just enough to be seen in the gloom. With slow, deliberate pace, the dog led the way for him to follow, avoiding puddles so that he wouldn't get wet. As soon as they reached the house, the dog disappeared. One day, while having dinner with the Olive family, he told them about it. Mrs. Olive asked, how could this dog outlive all others? Don Bosco replied with a smile, maybe it was just an offspring of Grigio. On another occasion, he was asked what its appearance was like. He was a dog, was the simple answer. During a very dangerous period in Don Bosco's life, when masons and heretics sought to assassinate our saint, divine providence sent him a large, very handsome gray dog for his protection and defense. This canine looked like a gray sheepdog or a watchdog. No one, not even Don Bosco, knew where it came from or its owner. Through the years, the guard dog proved to be a blessing for Don Bosco and the oratory, often appearing whenever they were in need of protection. However, the story doesn't end there, for the archives of the Daughters of Mary Help of Christians preserve three strange accounts of dogs which call to mind Don Bosco's Grigio. First account, Assisi. 
On November 2nd, 1883, two Salesian sisters returning on foot from Assisi to their school in Canada were unexpectedly caught outdoors, far from home, by night and a thick fog. They panicked. Sister Amelia Calon said to her companion, if Don Bosco would only send us his grigio. Indeed, exclaimed Sister Annette Dallada in a trembling voice. Moments later, a huge dog leaped out of the hedges, jumped a narrow ditch, and, panting heavily, began to walk between them. He was a tall dog with grayish fur and long, drooping ears, his eyes sparkling in the darkness. As though to cheer them, the friendly dog looked up to each of them like long-known acquaintances and licked their hands. On reaching the school, the sisters wanted to feed the dog, but he swiftly spun about and dashed out the gate. They ran after him. However, they saw nothing but the bare, vast square and adjoining road. Second account, Columbia. In 1930, the daughters of Mary Help of Christians were building in Berenquila, Colombia. Every day, news reached them of robberies and violence in the city and its surroundings. And they too feared the marauders because during the whole month of April, they had to store outdoors heaps of construction materials and furnishings like tubs, sinks, doors, and windows. Of course, the thieves knew the place well. On four occasions, before construction actually began, they had broken into the residence, and though they did no damage, they frightened the sisters. They therefore prayed to Don Bosco to send them his grigio for protection. One night, behold, into the corridor of their old residence trooped a string of dogs, six of them, never before seen in the neighborhood. They posted themselves in the play fields and in the darkest corners of the old house. Getting over their fear, the sisters approached the dogs and found them to be very friendly. At six o'clock the next morning, the dogs filed out just as they had come in, and this they did for an entire month. Later, only three dogs appeared, of which one was poisoned, but another one immediately replaced him. They kept guard until the danger passed. Third account, La Navarre, France. A third case took place at La Navarre in France sometime between 1898 and 1900. Sister Josephine Cretaz and Sister Verina Valenzano, recording the account 20 years later, couldn't remember the precise date. As is customary there, toward the end of October, the sisters venture into the nearby villages in search of chestnuts, remaining out three days. On that occasion, the two sisters went together. Going from one village to another took some four hours, mainly through sparsely inhabited woods. At a certain point, the solitude and silence got to them, and they panicked. We can be ambushed out here, they cried, and there's no one to defend us or even know we're here. As they mulled over these somber thoughts, they heard a rustling in the bushes as though someone were kicking up the leaves, but there was nothing to be seen. Suddenly, a huge dog appeared, drawing near them and wagging its tail. He circled around them and nudged their shoulders with his head as though to say, don't be afraid, I'm here. He then dashed out into the open, picked up a chestnut tree branch in his teeth, tossed it playfully into the air and ran to catch it, keeping always in front of them as though trying to distract them from their grief. Could this be Don Bosco's Grigio? They asked each other. They were hoping to bring the dog home with them on their return. 
However, just as they were approaching the town, they met a coach with some ladies they knew and stopped for a chat with them. Meanwhile, the dog disappeared without a single trace. Thank you so much for watching, and if you'd like to watch more videos about Don Bosco's angel dog, please click on the playlist above me here. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Don Bosco's Dream of Rebuke in the latter half of January 1876, Don Bosco had a symbolic dream, which he mentioned to several Salesians. One of them, Father Barbaris, urged him to tell it at a good night talk because the boys loved to hear his dreams, which greatly benefited them and made them feel closer to the oratory. The saint duly mounted the platform after night prayers, his beaming countenance revealing, as always, his joy at being with his sons. When everybody quieted down, for they were a rowdy group, Father Barbaris raised his hand. Excuse me, Don Bosco, he said. May I ask you a question? Certainly. I heard that recently you had a dream about seeds, sowers, and hens, and that you told the cleric Calvi about what you saw. Would you kindly tell us, too? We'd like to hear it. Aren't you nosy, Don Bosco replied in mock rebuke that provoked general laughter. I won't mind your calling me nosy, so long as you tell us the dream, Father Barbaris insisted. I think all the boys back me up, and I'm sure that they're most eager to hear you. Well, in that case, I'll tell you. I had intended to keep it to myself because of some things which concern some of you personally, things which might even make you uneasy. But since you asked for it, I'll narrate it. Oh, Don Bosco, if you have a hard knock in store for me, please spare me in public. No, no, I'll tell things just as I saw them and let each one take what pertains to him. Before I begin, just remember that dreams happen during sleep, when we have no control over our mind. If you find anything good in this dream, a warning or anything at all, take heed, but don't become ill at ease because of it. I said that I dreamed while I was sleeping because some boys dream while they're awake, much to their teacher's annoyance. So let me start. I seemed to be in Castelnuovo di Asti, where I was born. Before me stretched a vast field set in a beautiful plain. The field wasn't ours, and I had no idea who owned it. Many people were working with hoes, spades, rakes, and other tools. Some were plowing, sowing, and doing other chores. Scattered foremen supervised the work. I seemed to be one of them. Elsewhere, a group of peasants were singing. I gazed in astonishment, unable to figure out where I was. Why are these people working so hard? I kept asking myself. Then I answered my own question, to provide bread for my boys. It was truly delightful to see these good peasants working so hard and pursuing their tasks with untiring zest and diligence. A few, however, were having fun. As I took in the scene, I noticed several priests and many clerics of ours, some close to me, others farther away. I must be dreaming, I told myself. My clerics are in Turin, not here at Castelnuovo. But why am I wearing winter clothing? Yesterday the temperature was near freezing, and still these people are sowing wheat. I clapped my hands and began walking off, saying, I'm not dreaming. This really is a field. That cleric over there is so-and-so, and that other one I know, too. 
If I were dreaming, how could I see all this? Just then, I spotted nearby a kindly man whose countenance inspired trust. He was old. He was watching me and the other people intently. I went up to him. Tell me, my good man, I said, what's going on over here? What is this place? And who are these workers? Whose field is this? Fine questions, you ask, the man answered. A priest, and you don't know these things? Please tell me if this is a dream. I feel I'm dreaming, and all I see is just unreal. What you see is quite real, and I think you're wide awake. Don't you realize it? You're talking, laughing, and joking. People can dream that they're talking, listening, and acting as though they were awake, I objected. Forget that. You're here in body and soul. All right, if I'm awake, tell me who owns this field. You studied Latin, which is the first noun of the second declension that you learned in Donatus. Do you remember? Donatus was a widely used elementary Latin grammar book. Surely, but what does that have to do with my question? A great deal. Now tell me what that noun was. Dominus. And its genitive? Domini. Very good. Therefore, this field is Domini, of the Lord. Ah, now I see, I exclaimed. I was surprised at the old gentleman's explanation. Just then, I saw several people carrying bags of wheat grains while a group of peasants sang, The sower went out to sow his seed, as it says in the Gospel of Luke. I thought it was a shame to throw good seed into the ground to rot. Wouldn't it be better, I wondered, to grind it into flour for bread or pasta? But then I thought, He who sows not, reaps not. Unless the seed is sown and rots, what can one reap? Meanwhile, a large flock of hens were scurrying from all sides to peck at the wheat that was being scattered, while the peasants were singing, The birds came, ate up the wheat, and left the cockle. I looked about me and observed the clerics. One stood with arms folded, totally unconcerned. Another was chatting with his companions. Others shrugged their shoulders or looked the other way. There were some who laughed at what they saw and unconcernedly went on with their games or chores. No one tried to shoo the hens away. Resentfully, I said to each of them, What's wrong with you? Don't you see those hens eating up all the seeds and destroying the hopes of these good peasants? What kind of harvest are we going to have? Why do you stand there so mum? Why don't you shoo the hens away? Their only response was a shrug of the shoulders and a blank stare. Some didn't even move. They had been totally unconcerned with what was going on in the field before I shouted at them, and they were paying no attention now. You're a bunch of fools, I went on. Couldn't you at least clap your hands to scare them off? As my words were ineffective, I began clapping my own hands, and this prompted some of them to begin chasing the hens away, while I muttered to myself, Now they chase them away, now that all the weed has been gobbled up. Just then, the same choir of peasants sang these words, Dumb dogs unable to bark, as it says in the book of Isaiah. Astounded and exasperated, I faced the kindly old man. Please tell me what this is all about, I pleaded. I can't make any sense of it. What does the seed mean? The seed is the word of God. What's the meaning of the hens gobbling it up? Changing tone, the old man went on, if you want a full explanation, here it is. 
The field is the Lord's vineyard, as the gospel says, but it can also symbolize the heart of man. The farmhands are gospel workers who sow the word of God, especially by preaching. This word can bear much fruit in people's hearts if they're prepared, but then birds come and pluck it away. What do the birds symbolize? They symbolize murmuring. After hearing an inspiring sermon, one lad joins his companions and finds fault with the preacher's gestures, voice, or some word of his. He destroys the good effect of the sermon. Another will point out a physical or intellectual shortcoming of the preacher or ridicule his pronunciation. Again, the sermon is made fruitless. The same can be said about good books. Finding fault with them destroys the good they can do. Murmuring is all the nastier because it's generally done on the sly. It grows and thrives where we would least expect it. Wheat, even when sown in a poorly tilled field, will take root, grow, and bear fruit. When a storm breaks over a freshly sown field, that field becomes soggy, but it still yields a harvest. Even when the seed is not of the finest quality, it'll still grow. It may yield less, but yield it will. However, when hens or birds flock and peck at it, the field will yield nothing at all. So it is with sermons, exhortations, and good resolutions. If they're followed by distractions or temptations, their good effect will be lessened, but not destroyed. But if there is murmuring or backbiting or some similar thing, all is wiped out. Whose duty is it to sound the alarm, take a firm stand, cry out, and make sure that murmuring and unbecoming talk are silenced? You know the answer. What were those clerics doing? I asked. Couldn't they have prevented all that? Of course, but they didn't, he went on. Some just stood there, watching. Others paid no attention. Some were unaware of what was going on, and others didn't have the courage to oppose the evil. A few even joined in the murmurs and did their share to destroy the word of God. You're a priest? Insist on this point. Preach, exhort, speak out, and never be afraid of saying too much. Make everybody understand that criticizing those who preach, exhort, or give good advice is very harmful indeed. Furthermore, being silent and passive when a wrong is being done and one's duty calls for action makes one an accomplice in the evil deeds of others. Deeply impressed by these words, I kept looking for other failings so as to shame the clerics into doing their duty, but they had already begun shoving the hens away. I took a few steps, but tripped over an abandoned rake and woke up. Now let's draw a lesson from all this, Don Bosco said. Father Barbaris, what do you think of this dream? I think it's a good reprimand. Let the chips fall where they may. It should certainly do us some good, Don Bosco went on. My dear boys, avoid murmuring because it's a very grave evil. Shun it like the plague and try to make others avoid it too. At times, even good advice and excellent deeds are not as effective as is the prevention of murmuring or of harmful talk. Let us bolster our courage and attack these evils openly. There is no greater misfortune than to rob one of the benefit of God's word. One utterance, one smart remark can do just that. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to hear another story about Don Bosco's guardian angel dog, Grigio, just click on the link above me here. 
God bless you and Our Lady keep you. St. John Bosco's oratory had maintained a standard of moral excellence among their students that was unparalleled, even for its time. What was the secret? Don Bosco's daily short talk after night prayers. He said that these talks were just a few words around one striking thought to impress the boys and send them to bed fully taken up by the truth presented to them. Being favored with a photographic memory, he had at his fingertips an inexhaustible store of anecdotes and sayings. So today, I would like to narrate four of these good night talks just to give you a flavor of what it was like to have this great saint as a mentor. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Talk number one. As a youngster in Florence, St. Philip Neri often visited the city's Dominican monastery. More than once, he heard this story from one of the monks. There were two good religious who used to make their confessions to each other before reciting matins in the choir. One night, the devil decided to trick them. At the usual hour, he went and knocked at one of their cells and said it was time for church. Unsuspectingly, the friar went down and, on entering the choir, saw his companion, or so he thought, seat himself in the confessional. As usual, he knelt at the little grate and began to tell his sins. To his surprise, the confessor told him not to worry about them. The friar went on to graver faults, but the response was still, I'll give it no thought. Acting on a suspicion, he made the sign of the cross. At once, there was silence. The friar asked a question, but received no answer. He looked into the confessional and found it empty. The devil had vanished. My dear boys, remember that the devil's favorite bait for leading one into sin is, oh, that's nothing to worry about. Some friendships are too sentimental and looked on askance by superiors, but the devil whispers, oh, that's nothing. It's the same refrain when one steals from his schoolmates or disobeys superiors or breaks house rules. At times, when one has grave doubts about actions or thoughts, or is ashamed to confess them, the old deceiver keeps saying, Oh, that's nothing. My children, I don't want you to see evil where there is none, but I warn you not to listen to the devil when he whispers, That's nothing. A fault is always a fault, and one must try to correct it. Besides, let's not forget that he who neglects little things shall fall little by little, as it says in the book of Sirach. Good night. Second talk. Once, a young man called on St. Macarius in order to become a disciple of his. The saint welcomed him kindly and said, Do you see yonder cemetery? Yes, the young man replied. Well then, the saint went on, go over and shriek the worst insults you know to the people buried there. That's easy, replied the youth, and off he went to return an hour later. Did you carry out my orders? The saint asked. Yes. Good, now go back again and praise them to the sky. Once more, the young man obeyed. On his return, St. Macarius again asked, Did you carry out my orders? Yes, Father. What did the dead reply to your insults and praises? Nothing. Good, now keep this in mind. If you wish to be my disciple, you must be dead to insult or praise. My dear boys, being indifferent for God's love to whatever may befall us, good or bad, requires great virtue. 
but I would like you not to be oversensitive to praise or criticism, whether public or private. Sometimes a boy with special talents from God successfully performs a task or excels among his classmates. Then he goes strutting about, giving himself airs, showing off, drumming up praises. He may even look down on others and feel hurt if he isn't treated as he thinks he should be. This is nothing but pride, and it can be very harmful. Such conduct makes one ridiculous, hurts people's feelings, and sooner or later draws God's humiliation upon him. Likewise, some boys can't stand being criticized, much less can they take a joke, a pointed remark, or an insult. They flare up, fret, answer tit for tat, and look for a fight. God help anyone who just happens to be present. This too is pride. It hurts charity, makes us forget the Lord's commandment to forgive, turns our friends away, and makes us hateful to all. Eventually, we may even meet someone stronger than ourselves who will pay us back in our own coin. Then there is resentment, discontent, anger, regrets. So if we're praised, if we have no troubles, let us thank the Lord, but let us remain humble, reminding ourselves that all good things come from God and that God can take them back in a moment. If we are blamed justly, let us correct ourselves. If undeservedly, let us bear it patiently and calmly love for Jesus, who humbled himself for us. Learn to control yourselves, for this is the way to make friends and have no enemies. If someone delights in annoying you, your superiors will stand by you. In conclusion, though, remember that he who is meek and humble will always be loved by all, by God and by man. Blessed are the meek, for they shall possess the earth, as it says in the Gospel of Matthew. Good night. Before continuing with the final two Good Night Talks, I'd just like to say that if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass Intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, just click on the link in the description below, or you can wait till the end of the video and click on the Mass logo that should appear on the screen. It's a beautiful Mass said in the traditional Byzantine rite for all of your intentions. Talk 3 a devout Catholic soldier kept fulfilling his religious duties in the army post regardless of his fellow servicemen's unfavorable reactions. The first night that he knelt by his bed, they booed and hissed, jeered, mocked, and called him names. But as he took no notice and calmly went on with his prayers, the rowdies gradually quieted down. The following night, they teased him again, but not so rapidly. Little by little, before the month was over, they left him alone to do as he pleased. Meanwhile, as the young man showed himself always ready to oblige his army buddies by writing letters, looking after the sick, or substituting, there came a change of feelings. He soon became popular, and all vied for his friendship. Our Lord never leaves unrewarded his faithful ones who aren't ashamed to go to the sacraments and to Holy Mass. It was only fair, therefore, that he should give the soldier a sign of his protection. War broke out, and Belsogiorno, for that was our young man's name, marched to the front with his regiment. In the distance, enemy troops looked like so many dark patches over which bayonets glinted in the sun. When Belsogiorno's unit reached a certain position, the order was given to halt. The enemy had started to advance, but was still afar off, Remembering that he had not yet said his daily chaplet in honor of Mary's seven sorrows, Belso Giorno knelt, drawing a torrent of abuse on himself. 
It's time to fight now, not pray, you coward, some shouted, but he paid no attention. Suddenly there was a scream and a deafening explosion. Enemy batteries had opened fire. The agonizing cries of the wounded and the rattle of dying throats filled the air. Dazed by the shock, Belsogiorno got up and found himself the only one left unscathed among the dead and the dying. See, my dear boys, how the Lord protects those who aren't afraid of the world's jeers and unashamedly show themselves as true Christians. Talk 4 The last time I spoke to you, my dear boys, I told you how our Lord protected a soldier who wasn't ashamed to pray in public. This evening, I'll say something more on human respect. How many people are afraid to show publicly their loyalty to God? At times, they bravely face guns, swords, wild beasts, stormy seas, long and perilous explorations through vast forests and limitless deserts, and yet they quail before a sneer or a derisive smile. At stake is their obedience to God and the Church in most serious matters, such as hearing Mass on Sundays and Holy Days, abstaining from meat on Fridays, fulfilling their Easter duty, refraining from foul talk, and so forth. Since doing otherwise would compromise one's eternal salvation, isn't it sheer insanity to risk the loss of one's soul because of what some fool might say? A fool who later will laugh at your cowardice? Let us remember what our Lord said. Whosoever disowns me before men, I in turn will disown him before my Father in heaven. Look at St. Paul and imitate him. When he went to Damascus and entered the synagogue, he fearlessly declared his conversion, frankly admitting, it was I who persecuted the Christians, but now I am a Christian myself. Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the true Son of God. All were taken aback by his profession of faith and even more by his miracles. The sick were cured at the touch of his hand or by kissing the garments or anything that belonged to him. Thus God rewarded his generosity in obeying his command. From a tent maker, he became the great apostle of the Gentiles. In him were fulfilled our Savior's words, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. Good night. Thank you all so much for watching, and don't forget if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass Intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, just click on the logo next to me here. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Don Bosco's Providential Delay This is an excellent story that shows how even when this great saint did something seemingly wrong, Divine Providence found a way to make it all come out right. On Saturday, August 14, 1869, Don Bosco left for Montemagno, where he was expected for the solemn Feast of the Assumption. Marquis Fassati was looking forward to having him as guest of honor at a banquet for a large number of his friends. Father Francesia had got there one day before him. When the coach arrived without Don Bosco, the Marquis, who was deeply attached to him and counted on his presence, flew into a rage. Turning to Father Francesia, he railed, You, champion defender of Don Bosco, can you tell me what excuse he'll dare give for not showing up? Unfazed by this violent outburst, Father Francesia replied, 
My long experience has taught me that even when Don Bosco does something wrong, it somehow turns out for the best. At around 5 p.m., the guests sat down at the table, but the marquee was in a bad mood. What had caused Don Bosco's delay? Upon arriving in Asti, our saint had called on the Charato family, who had purposely made him miss the coach by keeping him busy with visitors. On realizing the late hour, he rushed to the station, only to get there half an hour too late. While he was planning his next step, the family, who was secretly delighted by their ruse, asked him to visit the festive oratory of Canon John Ceruti. This was the whole purpose of their trick. Don Bosco obliged. There he preached, heard confessions, and gave benediction of the Blessed Sacrament. Then, as dusk came on, he set out for the Charatos. While walking along, he heard somebody behind him cry out, By golly, that priest looks just like Don Bosco. Hearing his name, Don Bosco turned around. A thickly bearded man approached and greeted him most warmly, exclaiming, It's really you, Don Bosco. How are you? Fine. Do you still remember me? Of course. Your first name is James, isn't it? Yes, it is. Oh, I'm so glad that you still remember me. It's been 14 years that we haven't met. I always said that you did care for me. And to think of all the scrapes I got into and all the trouble I caused you. I'm truly glad to see you too and to know that you remember me. Yes, I did care for you and still do. By the way, what are you doing for a living? I'm a merchant and I can't complain. Are you still being good? asked Don Bosco. Yes, but uh, not quite as good as you might wish me to be. What do you mean by that? I'd rather not say. Well, I never found another Don Bosco. There's only one like you. I just can't bring myself to go to confession to other priests. I just can't. Would you confess to Don Bosco? I could never refuse him. I'd be ready any time he asked. Aren't there other friends of mine here in Asti besides you? asked Don Bosco. Oh, yes, replied James. There are several of us, and we're forever talking about you in the oratory, but we haven't been to confession since we left. Then why don't you all come tomorrow morning? It's a deal. You won't back out? Not at all. Perhaps we won't persevere, but we'll certainly never break our word to you. Tell me where you'll say mass tomorrow and we shall all be there. Before he got back to the Charatos, several other former pupils approached him. The next morning, fifteen married and single men went to confession to him and received Holy Communion from his hand. Then they took him to his coach, pressing about him with tears of joy and bidding him fond farewells. Thanks for all the good you've done for us and for making us so happy, they told him. It's not only the gentry who love you, but everyone, the poor people too. Townsfolk idling in the square were surprised to see so many men showing such respect and affection for a priest. Now when Don Bosco reached Montemagno, Marquis and Marchioness Fassati gently reproached him. You didn't keep your word, they chided. Why do you say that, he replied, seemingly unmindful of his delay. You're a day late. Oh, yes, you're right. Well, this is what happened, and he told them. Well, in that case, the Marquis commented, I wish you many more such delays whenever I invite you to my house. Well, Marquis, Father Francesia added, isn't it true that even when Don Bosco does something wrong, it somehow turns out for the best? 
Yes, I can't deny that, the Marquis replied. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to see a compilation of all the best Don Bosco episodes from last year, just click on the link above me here. And don't forget to subscribe and come back Wednesday for the Feast of St. John Bosco, January 31st. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. This is a talk on purity that Don Bosco gave at the oratory to all his young clerics. But it's not just for priests, because everyone can benefit from his advice. I was fascinated at how he connected the virtue of purity to getting out of bed in the morning and moderation in drinking wine. Forget all of the other popular motivational speakers now that are barely even Catholic, because St. John Bosco did it better. His tips for your daily schedule inspire heroic virtue and have a religious backbone that's sorely needed in the discussion of true manliness. Actually, today, January 31st, is St. John Bosco's feast day, and last year, more than 150 episodes ago, I dedicated this channel to Our Lady Help of Christians through the intercession of this great saint. Today, I renew my dedication to her and St. John Bosco. I want to give thanks to God for all of the people that Don Bosco has helped over the past year. However, I can't continue to do these videos without your help. Maybe you haven't noticed, but every single one of these videos are ad-free, which is a rarity on this platform. So please help me keep these episodes free from filthy YouTube ads and become a promoter of St. John Bosco by clicking on the link in the comment section below or by clicking on his logo at the end of the video. Please help me to spread the words of St. John Bosco far and wide. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Don Bosco began his talk to the Salesian clerics with the following words. Our membership seems to keep growing. If I see more of you every time I come here, I pity the poor devil. First, let us thank God for having allowed us to see the end of 1875 and, as we hope, for having started the new year in His holy grace. Let us also look forward to spending this year happily. Now, the last time I talked to you, I said something about your vocation, and I suggested a few means to help you keep it. Today, I will dwell on how to safeguard the fruit of this vocation. When one consecrates himself to the Lord, he offers him all his tendencies and inclinations, and particularly all his virtues. But these we cannot always retain or easily safeguard. This is particularly true of chastity, which is the foundation and hub of all virtues. I don't now intend to describe the beauty of this virtue. Neither years of lengthy lectures nor thousands of heavy tomes can tell of examples of this virtue found in Holy Scripture or narrate the countless miracles performed by our Lord to safeguard it among His devoted ones. Neither do I intend to speak to you about fast or abstinence or the mortification of the senses, practices which so effectively preserve and strengthen this virtue. No, you can read about these things in the lives of the saints, and you'll hear about them in future conferences. But you'll say, Don Bosco is here because he wants to talk to his clerics, whom he loves like the apple of his eye. What then will he tell us? I'll tell you that, especially for a priest and consequently for a young cleric who has consecrated his entire life and virginity to the Lord, chastity is a most precious gem or pearl. 
At your stage of life, there are some little things you should know which highly contribute to safeguarding such a lovely virtue. Without it, a priest or a cleric is utterly nothing. With it, he is all and holds all treasures in his hands. So let us talk of these little things so helpful and so handy. What are they? We will look at them one by one and you'll see their usefulness. One, to start with, let me say that the exact fulfillment of one's duties will vastly contribute to the preservation of chastity. I'm not referring to your specific duties, such as studying, supervising, teaching catechism, and so on, but rather to what our roles demand from each of us, punctuality in all things, at meals, prayer, night rest, etc. Two, be in the playground during recreation, but be on guard lest this time turn into idle diversion or griping about rules or superiors. Let it be genuine recreation, relaxation of mind and heart after a whole morning's work. After such a recreation, your body too will be refreshed, and each of you will be ready for studying, praying, or teaching. You might ask, but what has recreation to do with chastity? I answer that it most effectively helps to safeguard it. Some of you are already supervising the boys or shall very soon do so. You may at times notice that some healthy boy looks troubled, keeps to himself, and when questioned, mumbles nonsense. People who are experienced and can fathom the most hidden recesses of the human heart know that immodest thoughts occupy his mind. They know that if such a boy is not carefully watched, he is likely to seek out some hiding place to read obscene books. They realize that his chastity is in extreme peril. How does this come about? Through idleness during recreation. Isolated from others, he lets his mind wander to fancies he had never heeded before. The more he thinks of those things, the more he likes them, and then it is but a short step to act them out. St. Philip Neri, who was thoroughly versed in this virtue, always told his boys, shout and make all the noise you want, but don't commit sin. His boys carried out his advice with great zest, but at times a lay brother would tear out of his quarters to scold them for their racket as they dashed through the corridors and knocked things over. You rascals, he would shriek, is this the way to behave, breaking everything in sight? but they ignored him and carried on as before with deafening noise. They had their director's permission, and that was all that mattered to them. Seeing that they had no intention to obey him, the lay brother would go to St. Philip Neri and indignantly say, I want you to come and scold those scamps. Can't you see they're tearing the whole house down? St. Philip Neri would call them over and say, Listen, my sons, stay still if you can and don't scream too loudly. The boys would scatter for new and noisier games, while the poor brother would withdraw discomfited and muttering. Were it not for the fact that St. Philip Neri constantly and earnestly told his confreres, never let boys be idle during recreation, the brother would have used forceful means to end that rumpus. I say the same thing to you now. I like to see you run and laugh and have fun. As soon as the recreation period is over, Promptly go to your other tasks. Study, for instance. Never neglect it. It is your duty to use every spare moment to increase your knowledge. If it's time for a snack, I urge you to take it, if you need it. 
When it's time for church, you should go devoutly and give good example and then return to your studies again. In a word, do everything at the set time and do it well. Above all, keep all the house rules. Three, is this enough? Yes, if the timetable is faithfully followed in its entirety. I have always recommended and still recommend and will continue to recommend that after night prayers, you do your utmost not to linger in conversations with others. After night prayers, go to bed promptly. Those who have to supervise the dormitory should do so with reserve, not stopping to chat with their partner if they have one. It would be even worse to say goodnight to a boy or a cleric because one word leads to another and the conversation drags on. Chatting after night prayers is not only against the house rules, but is felt by all to be a dangerous thing. Let us keep all rules, especially those concerning the night rest. I can't elaborate now, but what I can and must tell you is that most recent transgressions were mainly due to the fact that some broke this rule and indulged in conversation after night prayers. They gave the boys bad example. Some did worse by inviting their friends for a drink in their own cubicles, a thing which is absolutely forbidden. Each is to stay in his own cubicle and keep out of everybody else's, unless real necessity demands otherwise. On those occasions, some wrote letters and made plans which, though not totally contrary to the virtue of chastity, were still an obstacle to it and caused serious heartaches, not only to me, but also to themselves, since some were forced to leave as a result. Why? Because instead of going to bed at the right time, they stayed up to chat. In the case of some, we weren't sure, but the facts were indisputable as regards others. Their reputation was ruined, and they had to leave the oratory because they were unable to safeguard this virtue. 4. Some who go to bed late are also late to rise at 5.30 the next morning. Well, they think, I can sleep another 15 minutes because I can dress, wash, and make my bed in time. 15 minutes later, they reason, oh, I'll just snooze for another five minutes. After all, what's the difference? And so they doze or lie lazily for another five minutes, stretching the time out to 10 or more. Now, how can I get away with this? I know, in one of his works, Cicero says that smart people may tell lies. Besides, lies don't hurt. I'll say I'm sick. My dear boys, acting this way only gives the body more than is good for it. How much feed do farmers give to colts and ponies? Just enough to keep them healthy. Otherwise, they become unmanageable, snap their halters, and kick back. We must do the same with the body. It behaves like a horse or a mule. Overfed, it becomes stubborn and rebellious. As scripture says, he grew fat and frisky. The devil, like a roaring lion, goes about seeking someone to devour. He circles about us, hoping to find something in which to sink his teeth. Besides the noonday devil who assails those who nap through an afternoon, there is also the morning devil, described by the book of Tobias. This devil lures the soul away from prayer, too. When two people pray, the Lord is in their midst, and the Immaculate Lamb gathers their devout prayers to present them to the Eternal Father, obtaining favors, comfort, and the richest rewards for them. Not so those who welcome this devil by lying lazily in bed.
Because of sloth, they don't join their companions at prayer, and they suffer the grievous loss of favors they might have received from God. They accustom their body to being lazier. Their constant complaint for more sleep exposes them to the devil's attacks. These lazy fellows are actually looking for trouble. And when temptations arise, will they be able to resist? Will they remain chaste? That will be hardly possible, I assure you. If they resist and don't fall into sin, I would say it's a miracle. But does God always work such miracles? Believe me, no. He will, if necessary, when one has not placed himself into an occasion of sin and without that help clearly cannot be snatched from the devil's clutches. Some may say, I have always been slow to rise and I never fell. In that case, I ask, you mean you never consented to bad thoughts, desires, or deeds? If they insist that they didn't, then I say quite openly, if you're telling me the truth, the Lord has performed a great miracle to save you. That's the end of part one of this sermon. And if you'd like to hear part two, please subscribe and come back to the channel on Friday. Thank you all so much for watching, and thank you for all the support we've received through this past year of posting. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Don Bosco's Sermon on Purity, Part 2. One evening, St. John Bosco was trying to give advice for maintaining the virtue of purity to his Salesian clerics. Though this talk was for priests, purity is the foundation of any true man. The maintaining of this virtue makes us comfortable with discipline and self-denial. One of these tips was to rise immediately with the morning bell and not to lazily mope out of bed or hit the snooze button, as we would say today. He gave a shocking example of a cleric who had left the Salesians because of this slothful defect. Don Bosco said, I could prove this with many examples, but time limits me to one. I learned of it yesterday evening in a letter I got from a former cleric who left the oratory for such a failing. I meant to bring it and read it to you, but I forgot. Still, here's the gist of it. I'd like to remind you at this point that Don Bosco had a photographic memory, so this is probably word for word what was in the letter. He wrote, One evening, after night prayers, you strongly cautioned the boys to be on guard against the morning devil. That is, not to linger in bed after the bell and bask in pleasant laziness. Unwilling to believe you and follow your advice, I said to myself, Don Bosco is using this trick to make us get up on time. So I kept indulging in my laziness. Meanwhile, during those few minutes, the devil arose and, hovering around me, aroused not evil, but unbecoming images in my mind. Soon he made me think of something slightly immodest. This thought grew worse and more irresistible. Then I passed on to enjoyment, consent, and finally deed. After leaving the oratory, I attended two other seminaries, always bothered by the same thoughts and by the same morning devil until I finally resolved to follow your advice and began to feel somewhat more tranquil. When I made up my mind to rise promptly, I found it a bit difficult, but I fully succeeded in defeating the devil on the second morning. Unfortunately, now I have lost my vocation and God only knows how I'll make it out in the world. Don Bosco, you may cite me as an example to your clerics. 
Tell my name, if you wish, for I believe that there are still some who knew me. Tell them that my problems came about because I was unwilling to leave my bed in the morning and start the day in a holy manner. Thus ended the letter. How many similar tragic examples I could tell you. But let me continue on this topic of the morning devil to draw other conclusions and point out what disgraceful things can happen to those who let themselves be slaves of this wretched laziness. Let's single out one of these lazy fellows. After soothing his conscience about lying in bed, after much stretching and yawning, he finally crawls out of bed. But one failure calls for another. I should go to mass now, he says, but if I do, I won't be able to study my lesson, so I'd better go to the study hall and attend a later mass if I can. On his way to the study hall, he gets another bright idea. How about breakfast? I'm starved. I'll skip church today and pray better tomorrow. On his way to breakfast, he meets somebody. How are you? The latter asks. Fine. Where are you going? Breakfast. How about mass? It's too late now for me. Today is Thursday, though. Doesn't our house rule say we should go to communion? Right, but now I haven't got time. Or better, I haven't the will. I'll go tomorrow. Well, when evening comes, ask this fellow how he spent the day. If he's honest, he'll certainly reply that he spent it badly because he started it in a lazy way. 5. This kind of devil can be cast out only by prayer and fasting, as it says in the Gospel of Mark. Now look, don't think I mean that these failings can be overcome only by prolonged fasting. Far from it. I'm not saying that you should fast. All I recommend is temperance. Be on guard, especially against wine. The amount you get at meals is so little that it can't harm you. And I'm pretty sure they had wine every day at meals. In fact, it'll do you some good. Nevertheless, imprint deeply into your minds that wine and chastity don't go together. Temperance is what you need, and some of you need it badly. It's very distressing to find liqueurs, wines, brandy, food, pastries, and tidbits in some lockers and drawers. My dear clerics, at breakfast, you can have all the coffee and milk and bread you want. At both dinner and supper, you're served adequate and wholesome meals. What else do you want? Eating between meals is plain gluttony and does your stomach no good. No wonder that these people later feel sick and have to go to the infirmary. When asked what bothers them, all they can mumble is, my stomach. What's wrong with it? I have a stomach ache. I would merely tell them, if you hadn't overeaten at meals and between meals, you wouldn't have any trouble now. Here's something that happened within the last few days. While everyone was in bed, one fellow, who I believe may have already left, sneaked off to his cubicle with a friend for a late snack. They feasted on chicken and wine, then ate and drank some more. Finally, after chatting to their heart's content, they went to bed with a full stomach, risking a stroke or some other trouble. I don't know how chastity fared under those circumstances. I can only say that if it did not suffer, it was because of God's special grace. Besides, it's strictly forbidden to invite anyone into your own cubicle. What of obedience? What of the rules? What becomes of them? 6. Another thing that's hardly helpful to chastity is friendship. Not genuine fraternal friendship, but that peculiar kind which singles out one more than others. 
Some individuals, attracted by a physical or spiritual trait of a companion or pupil, strive to win his friendship with food, candy, books, a holy picture, or some other trifle. This way, they strike up friendships which are exclusive and infatuating. Then come meaningful glances, gifts, and requests for one thing or another. Without realizing it, both friends find themselves ensnared. Youngsters who formerly looked very promising are no longer at the oratory, or if they're still here, they conduct themselves quite differently. When some were warned to break up these exclusive friendships, they couldn't understand why they should. They saw nothing wrong, but in the meantime, they became ever colder to their companions, their superiors, and even God. These things didn't happen centuries ago. They happened in our times and are still happening today. I could tell you about many youngsters who were ruined by such exclusive friendships, so I urge you to be friends with all or with none. For instance, you may leave the dining room for the playground and meet a friend or pupil and walk along with him, which is the thing to do. If one or more companions or pupils join you, they should be as welcome as the first. Being in the company of one whom you hold dearer than others, even if it is because he's better and more diligent, does not entitle you to treat others differently. You must be like an impartial father or teacher to all. Frankly, let me tell you that I have no favorites. I love equally the foremost and the humblest among you. You're all my sons, and I would gladly give my life for each one of you because, as St. Paul said, you are and must strive to be my joy and my crown. Seven, there is another means by which to fight this enemy of chastity, this demon. I hate to say it, but since it's between us, let me give you a good suggestion. When going to the restroom, get out as soon as you're through, because that's the place, a most unsavory one, where this demon begins his assaults. By leaving at once, you stand to gain because you're safeguarding yourself from the danger of losing the virtue of purity. Eight, at night, try to form this wholesome habit. As you're about to get into bed, whisper a prayer and the devil will leave you alone. But you may object, I fall asleep immediately. Wonderful, you're fortunate and that's just what I desire. But some may say, at times it takes me hours to fall asleep. Then pray, I say, and keep praying. But I don't like it, they protest. Pray, nevertheless. Try, because the Lord, seeing your trust and humility, will give you the strength you need to withstand and overcome those serious temptations. Some time ago, Professor Garelli, now a school superintendent, called on me and said in this regard, guess what I do to forestall the assaults of the ugly night demon? I have no idea, I replied, tell me. It's very simple. As soon as I'm in bed, I begin to count from one to a thousand. I must admit that I never get farther than 50. In fact, I don't remember even getting that far. I immediately fall asleep and wake up the next morning with a tranquil mind. Other people have a fine habit of mentally reciting stanzas from Dante or Virgil or some other scholastic material they've been studying. I fully approve of these means and commend their use because they tire the mind and help one to sleep. I could say much more on this topic, but I think this is enough. These are fatherly suggestions I give you in our family intimacy, not a lecture. I ask you not to broadcast to the boys what I've told you. 
let it rather be imprinted in your hearts as a norm of conduct. Nor would I like you to report my words indiscriminately, not that it should matter to me if people know. As you see, these are trivial things, but they're very important and most beneficial if practiced. During Mass, I shall pray that you may preserve the virtue of chastity and consecrate it by vow one day to the Blessed Virgin. During Communion, ask for this grace for yourselves, your companions, your superiors, and me too, lest I preach in vain to others and unfortunately possess it not myself. In short, let us warmly ask for it for each other, and the good God will grant it to us. Two days after this talk, Don Bosco sent a fatherly message to all his Salesians, expressing the hope that they would consider it as written to each personally. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to hear more talks by St. John Bosco, just click on the link above me here. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you.